You know, when I was, as I was thinking about this passage and how to help apply it to us in our context today, um, I got to thinking about just the, the, the situation we're in today uh, in our own culture, right? We can talk about cultures all over the world, but let's talk a little bit about our culture uh, here in America today, or Western culture, uh, which has largely, over the years, been influenced by Judeo-Christian values. Not perfectly, obviously. It's had many flaws. Um, but at the same time, what we're seeing in, currently in our culture is a lot of Americans um, who know that influence or who have grown up in that influence are experiencing a little bit of cult culture clash right now um, as our American culture grows increasingly secular. And fewer and fewer people are influenced by what we would call biblical values in some ways. And we live in a culture right now where people are still very spiritual, but they're biblically more and more what we would say illiterate. They don't know when you say the guy holds the John 3.16 sign up in the, at the football game. They're like, who's John? Is he in row three, seat 16? Like that average American uh, that's 28 years old uh, living in uh, a metro, large metropolitan area doesn't necessarily know exactly what you mean when you say John 3.16. You might be surprised to find out. And even in our churches, our churches are full of Christians, many of which have never read the New Testament, much less the Bible, and there's a lot of biblical illiteracy even among Christians today. And we see certain areas like sexuality, the gender discussion in our country, marriage, um, that are on the forefront of our national ethics discussion. And the biblical worldview on these matters is actually increasingly unpopular and not understood well. And so that's kind of the situation that we're in. And so there's kind of this culture clash that's happening. And in the midst of that, we've got to learn how do we represent Christ well? How do we share Christ? How do we hold to Christ? How do we live for Christ? How do we live on mission? In a world that's increasingly not one that you can walk up and say, have you been born again? And people have a clue what you're talking about. Have you been saved? And they don't have a clue what you talk about. And as we said back when we did the three circle series, we sometimes have to start at the very beginning with, did you know there's a God? And he made everything. Well, as we venture through Acts this morning, we see Paul enter the kind of culture where he had to kind of start at base level and build. Paul, in, as we come to Acts chapter 17, verse 16, at this point in Acts, we know last week we talked about how he had entered Macedonia and he came to a city called Philippi. We talked about the different people he met there, ending with the Philippian jailer. You get to chapter 17, he moves on from Philippi to a major city in Macedonia called Thessalonia. And it's at Thessalonia that it was said, these people, you might have heard the phrase, they're turning the world upside down, right? Some of the Jews that were there that were not open to the gospel um, are very upset about what's being preached. And they actually say, they're turning the world upside down. They mean it in a negative way. Uh, we know that it was actually, they, had a, they didn't really have a clue. They, they really were turning the world upside down. And it's continuing to be turned upside down by the gospel. And then, so they're kind of run out of that town. And they go to the next town, and it's Berea. And it's Berea that has been famously noted as, as they, the Jews there were very open to the gospel. And they were very, they, man, they studied the scripture to find out what Paul was saying. Is this true or not? So they're looking in the Old Testament and they're reading the prophecies. And is this Jesus really the Messiah? And it's a, a model for us of how we should approach the word of God. You shouldn't just come in here this morning and hear me or anybody else open up the word of God and tell you the Bible says this and this is what it means and just take my word for it. You should study the scriptures for yourself, right? And, and, and understand the scriptures. And the Bereans are a great model for that. But even there, those people that didn't like Paul and Thessalonia, they followed into Bereans, caused trouble for him there. So Paul had to leave town. 
And he leaves town and he leaves Timothy and Silas, part of his team behind, and he goes and he's camped out in Athens. Now he calls for them to come meet him. I don't know how much time has surpassed at this point. And while he's waiting on them to come meet him so they can continue their mission, Paul hangs out in Athens, right? He's got a layover. A little, what we might consider, hey, get a little downtime here. Maybe this is a time to, to be off mission for a little while, but we see with the Apostle Paul there's never a time to be off mission. And in, starting in verse 16 in Athens, we see Paul is going to encounter a culture with a worldview and with idols in their world that is at odds with the good news of the gospel that he holds dear and is proclaiming and that we proclaim today. And it's a culture not awash with Old Testament literacy, but one that has a completely different worldview than one that has been shaped by a Hebrew people that have been influenced by the Torah. And from this, we can learn how to live and minister in a culture like ours that is increasingly spiritual, yet lost, knowledgeable, got knowledge at our fingertips, yet ignorant of God's word. Look with me in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, and we'll read all the way down through verse 34 this morning. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinity because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Does that not describe our own culture today? Where you've got news stations 24-7. You can open up an app on your phone and, and find out what's going on anywhere in the world. And people love to talk and debate on Facebook and social media and text. And, and it's just... Constantly figuring something out, debating stuff, talking stuff, much like the Athenian culture of that day. And then in verse 22 it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Now, he's standing now in this room full of... Uh, I believe I read somewhere that was probably only about... Maybe only about 30 people. But this is the leaders. This is, this is the people that are... Man, they are the thought changers. They are the, the idea promoters of that day. As Paul stands in this, in this room full of leaders we have a, what is a condensed version of his sermon. This is probably not the whole sermon. It's probably the bullet points. It was typical for speeches in this, in this environment to be very long. And so it's likely not that his was very short, um, although it does seem he gets cut off at the end. So he probably, he probably said a lot about each of these points that he goes over with them. Look at what he says. He says in verse 22, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius, uh, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So here is the story, as you might know, as Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. In the King James, it's translated Mars Hill because it uses the, the Roman name for the god Mars versus here we, that we get the term Areopagus, uh, Ares, the god of war in Greek mythology. Uh, the same false god, different names in the Roman culture and the Greek culture. And a little bit about Athens, where Paul's at here. Athens, Greece, has been known as what they call the cradle of democracy. It has an incredibly rich history and influence over the world today uh, from its history. It's a famed city that F.F. Bruce noted in his commentary, quote, the sculpture, literature, and oratory of Athens in the 5th and 4th centuries B.C. have indeed never been surpassed. Think about it this way. This is the city of Socrates, Plato. And as Bruce notes, the adopted home of Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno. John Polhill notes that while it had lost its former glory by this time, it was still the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. It didn't quite have the sway and political power it once did, but it was still that cultural epic center. It was still that intellectual thought think tank. It was still the place that ideas kind of tended to permeate out from. And as Paul walks into this city and walks through the marketplaces and he looks around, He's surrounded by sculptures and statues that would really be beautiful to the eye. We would look at it today and we'd say, what an incredible work of architecture, what an incredible work of art. But what they actually were were temples and altars and monuments dedicated to gods, false gods, places where you could go offer sacrifices to your god, places where you could go worship God, things that were built in honor of the gods. And so just incredible architecture all around that was aesthetically very pleasing and beautiful, but spiritually very troubling because it revealed that these people were in fact worshipers, but worshipers of false gods. And so Paul begins ministering there. Now, we learned here from Paul, I believe, how we, some, some takeaways here of how we can better live for Christ and live on mission in our culture today that's increasingly biblically illiterate and increasingly secular in our own way. Number one, We see from Paul, and we need to learn ourselves, that we need to be stirred to action. It says when Paul was in this city, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word there, provoked, is an important word. It means stirred up, incited, urged on, upset. It's kind of a picture of righteous indignation. Paul was deeply bothered. He was a little hot under the collar about this. But not in a way, I'm going to go, you know, rip somebody's head off verbally kind of way. But just, I mean, he's deep about the God of the Bible. The holy God of the Bible, Yahweh, is not receiving the worship and the honor he's due. They're giving it to these false gods, these fake gods, these things they created with their own imagination. 
And so what bothers him is what he sees with his eyes. The word there where it says he's, what he, he saw, he sees these idols, it means to see with attention. You know, you can see things and it just kind of go over your head. Or you can see things and you can see issues behind things. And Paul here is looking beyond just the aesthetic beauty and he's seeing a spiritual condition as he looks around. And you have to see and you have to feel the problem in your culture and in our city and with the people you know and love if you want to impact people far from God. The people are deceived. That they are, in fact, worshiping, whether they know it or not, but they are not worshiping the God of the Bible. Our culture today is filled with anger, but it's not righteous many times. The vast majority of it is actually quite sinful. People are angry over cultural change, politics, loss of power, lack of change, you name it. Some are angry simply because their idol has been displaced or disrespected. And so you've got righteous indignation that fills a righteous indignation when you see sin and you see injustice and you see things God not worshipped as he should and it's and righteous indignation will lead you towards loving people and pressing the gospel upon people and bearing witness to Christ and then there's a sinful anger that's motivated differently and ends in different results and usually just ends in us you know giving somebody a piece of our mind whether or not we give them the gospel and it doesn't land like it should or we get bitter. And we fight power with power. As I was studying this week, I read a comment from, uh, giving credit here, uh, I read a comment from Pastor J.D. Greer where he said that you can be so worldly that you don't even recognize as you're in your culture the idols. Or you can recognize them and you can respond wrongly to what you see and feel. And I think that's true. You can be so eat up with the world and with the idols of the world and be, and be so consumed by it that you don't, really, you don't really get it. Unless it's something that's just so twisted and so off base and so perverse or whatever that it kind of gets your attention. It's kind of like, a, it's, it's because your nature hasn't been changed. It's kind of like if you take a fish and you take that fish and you place that fish in water, what do you have? Happy fish. And if the fish could talk and you could say, how's the water? He'd say, the what? It's my environment. That's what I know. I was made for this. Now, you take a cat. And you have some fun. No, I'm just kidding. You take a cat and you place it in water and you get a completely different reaction because it's not a fish. And if you lived to tell about it, you would learn something, right? <laughs> And the difference is their nature. One craves the water, wants the water, is made for the water. Man, that's its environment. The other one is just kind of like, this isn't my environment, right? And there are some people that are like fish in this world. And they just swim in the idolatry. And it's like they're made for it. They're not, but they're so, their nature is still far from God. It's still separated from God. It's still of this world. They haven't been born again, as the Bible says. They haven't been converted and they just swim in it. And other people are aware, right? There are Christians who are aware and they get it, right? We're supposed to be in the world, not of the world. And they're in the world and they're not of the world. And they're, they know that as a Christian, they recognize what's going on. But listen, if there's not many places in the world 
where you feel like a cat in a swimming pool? It may be because you're still of this world. I mean, if you're super comfy all the time, right? If you never feel like an alien, if you never feel like a stranger, if you never feel like this world really isn't my home, then maybe this world is your home. And maybe the prince and the power of the air is the prince of your heart. Paul wasn't that way. But we can see and feel, Christians, we can see and feel and understand and the problem we can respond poorly. We can withdraw from the culture altogether, kind of live in isolation, create our Christian subculture, right? We'd be like, man, I just wish Lifeway would start selling groceries, right? <laughs> I just wish I'd go to Lifeway and get all my household goods, right? And we could just, just live there, right? Everything Christian this, Christian that, Christian that. We just create our own subculture. But Jesus said we're in the world, not of the world. And he actually said to the Father, I don't pray that you would remove them from the world. So we've got to figure out a way to live in this world and to bear witness to Christ and not bear the wrong message or bear the right message in a hateful or angry way. We've got to be stirred to act, and that action should be bearing witness to Christ. And that leads us to our second step here. We have to engage culture and worldviews. This is where it gets sticky. It says Paul reasoned, so he, so he reasoned, because he saw this, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. His being stirred led him somewhere and it led him to reason with these people. It led him to engage these people. It says some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers were there, vastly different worldviews than what Paul was from. So what did Paul do as he was stirred? He, he had a conversation. He talked. He engaged them and reasoned with them. And notice, you see Jews, devout persons, and the marketplace. It's like three categories of three different spiritual temperatures. The Jews here, I mean, they, they had been given the Old Testament promises. They had the Torah. They, they knew the Ten Commandments, right? They, they know all the stuff. They understand who, who God really is, that he is Yahweh, and that he has given them a promise, and that a Messiah is coming. And, and they've got this rich history of the promises of God. So their spiritual IQ is high, so to speak. And then you've got the devout persons. These are Gentiles who believe that, that Yahweh is the one true God, that there is only one God, but they haven't fully converted to Judaism. So they have kind of a working understanding of these things. And Paul won a lot of these people to Christ when he would go into cities. But then there's a third category. And this is the marketplace, and this is everyone else. And this shows us that Paul wasn't just going for those that had a spiritual temperature. He was going for those who were ice cold to the gospel as well. This is where, as we see here, the philosophers and everybody else was hanging out, and the people that didn't have a clue what Paul was talking about when he started talking about resurrection and things like that, they found it laughable. And in our day, we've got varying, you could some is probably more categories than that, but you could easily place everybody in three categories. We've got, in our culture, we might would say church people. And that in our, we have church people who, are very, who understand, who have heard the gospel, who know the Bible, who have, are familiar with the Bible, who have grown up in church. They're members of churches that maybe they've been baptized. They have a church membership. They take the Lord's Supper when, it, you know, when that time comes. And, they're, but, and some of those people do not know Christ. 
Just like some of the Jews rejected Christ when he came. And some of those have never truly received Christ. They're trying to earn and work their way to heaven. They're just like many of the Jews when Christ came. They're clinging to a works-based righteousness instead of hoping in the righteousness of Christ. And so we have to preach the gospel to those people. And then there's the devout people. And in our culture, I would say there's kind of this other group of people who maybe have been influenced by church, grew up in church. They went to VBS. They went to revivals growing up. Remember revivals? They, might, they have some church background or had a grandma that took them to church or maybe they went to church when they were small. And So there's kind of like this memory, you might say, of the gospel. But they might show up on Christmas. They might show up on Easter. But it's just kind of they kind of keep everything at arm's length. But they understand what we're talking about when we start talking about Jesus and all that sort of stuff. And then there's the marketplace that is filled with people that don't know what John 3.16. There's the marketplace where you have to start with, there is a God. Let's talk about that. He's the creator of everything. Let's talk about that. Something's wrong in the world. Let's talk about that. And you just have to go step by step by step. And that is the increasing, growing number of our culture. We have to be willing to engage the culture. See, the marketplace in their culture in here in Athens was more than a, a grocery store or a flea market like we might want to think of it. We think of it like a strip mall, right? He's hanging out at the strip mall. This was a place of business and art and education, a place where speeches were given. It was everything combined. It was the cultural center of the city, the place that ideas and power and all that flowed out from. It was the heartbeat of the city and the culture. Tim Keller, who I quote often, especially about these kind of matters, says it's like if you took Hollywood, Harvard, and Wall Street and combined them. Right? And what we're learning here is that we can't be afraid to take the gospel into the very heart of the culture to business leaders and artists and educators and government leaders. But see, that starts with us taking it to our friends and to our neighbors and having conversations with them. And because people shape culture, and we're called to reach people. And as we reach people, culture is shaped and changing. And to do this, we have to be willing to answer and deal with hard questions, as Paul says. We don't like the hard questions, right? I mean, I've, I start to get, I'm getting hard questions from Canon now. A lot of times. He's asking me all kinds of things about these. You know, I don't how can God be everywhere? There's only one of them. You know, he's, he's, and we tend to, we hear those, you know, your kids, man, they can throw you some zingers, right? They'll ask you stuff that you never even haven't really thought about in a while, or you've never thought that deeply about. And the tendency is to press back and kind of go, oh, right? Text me or something, like I know something about it, right? <laughs> Send me an email. <laughs> our tendency is just kind of like, wait till, you know, wait till your mom or dad gets home, whoever you think might be more knowledgeable or whatever. But we don't need to be afraid of those conversations, not with our kids and not with our culture. That's where we need to press in. That's where God's at work, is in the hard questions. God's there. He's working. I'm not talking about chasing every rabbit at the water cooler. But we can't free, be afraid, for instance, to talk about sexuality and abortion and gender and marriage and difficult issues that our culture is debating right now because the gospel has something to say about all of that. And listen, how people come down on these issues and how they feel about these issues, it exposes who or what they worship. It reveals their idols, so we have to engage and we have to have discussions and show them that the gospel is ap applicable to their life and their worldview. 
Notice Paul engaged two distinct worldviews in Athens. First, we see they mentioned the Epicurean and they mentioned Stoic. Let me tell you a little bit about those people. The Epicureans, these were the materialists of that day. They believed in no afterlife. You're dead and that's it. They had no problem believing in gods in the plural form, but saw them as detached, unconcerned, and uninvolved with the life of humans. Pole Hill, commentator I quoted earlier, says that they believed, quote, if only true, if, if one truly learned from the gods, that person would try to live the same sort of detached and tranquil life as they, as the gods, free from pain, passion, and fears. So this materialistic pursuit of pleasure and of tranquility, polytheistic. And then you have the Stoic philosophy. It was pantheistic. Everything is God, in other words. There's a lot of that in our culture today. And F.F. Bruce says that they considered God as the, the world soul, right? That everybody had a d- divine spark, it's been noted, that they believed resided in all humans, and they called this Logos. And to them, living by reason was to reach the ultimate in life. Because it was that reason that everybody had that linked everybody together and that was deity inside of them. And everybody has a little God. And they had a high regard for self-sufficiency and a high moral ethic. And as has been noted, they believed in a what you call a universal brotherhood because we were all connected by this divine spark. That's kind of their philosophy. And both of these are foreign and different than the worldview that was shaped that, that had shaped Paul, both as both as a Jew and now as someone who believes the gospel as a Christian. And his willingness to confront their worldview brought two things: opportunity and criticism. Opportunity because he gets to preach Jesus and the resurrection, it says, and then he gets this great opportunity in front of these leaders. But also it brought criticism because he's called a babbler, right? That's not a compliment. Hopefully that's not what you say about me at lunch when you go home. That preacher just babbled on today, right? A babbler. The word used to, it means a word scavenger. It was a picture of a, chin, a chicken pecking, right? And he's saying, it, basically the picture was, you're just pecking at thoughts and ideas and just spitting them out, and you're just kind of grabbing this person's thought and this person's thought and kind of making this soup and spewing it on everybody. Just babbler, word scavenger. And when Christians engage in the marketplace of ideas and take the gospel there, we will have ample opportunity, but we will also have ample criticism. And the choice is we either go into the marketplace and reason with those that are there and how they view the world, or we stick to the smaller number of people that share a similar worldview, and we only hang out and talk with, in Paul's day, it would have been the Jews and the devouts. And in our day, it would be the people that we can get at church on Easter and those that are here every Sunday. Less conflict. Less criticism. Less opportunity. Paul says, I want to engage all these worldviews. I want to engage the culture. I want to have a conversation. And here's where he brought it to. Number three, we have to confront idolatry with gospel truth. Paul confronted the idolatry of the culture head on. That's how it has to be confronted if we share Christ. This is true in culture, and it's true in your heart. It's true in my heart. He did this primarily by contrasting the true God with their false gods, their idols. We can't confront the idols of our culture, though, if we're worshiping at the same altars they do, right? We can't bring the gospel very well to bear on the idols of our neighbors and help them to understand and discern that they're an actual, actually a worship, a worshipful person, that is, their worship is just distorted if they look at us and they see someone who worships at the same altar they do. 
like Paul comes out of a, a temple dedicated to a Greek god. And he's like, now let me tell you about Jesus, which is who you really need. That's what it's like when they see us. looks like we are engaged in the same cultural flow of idolatry and our hearts in the same place that they are. We depend on for our identity and our self-worth and all those things that they do. And then we try to tell them about Jesus. And what that says is, let me give you someone to add to your list of gods. That's what I've done. As Paul stood before this group of people, he begins his address with, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's kind of, the word religious could be taken positively or negatively depending on context. And Paul probably purposely used it that way so it could kind of be taken either way. Because it could also mean like superstitious. Because it was obvious that they were very overly superstitious. They had a God for everything. Literally for everything. And their city was full of buildings dedicated to worshiping him. Now we tend to read a passage like this and go, well, that's very primitive. I mean, yeah, you're talking first century. Of course they had these statues. We don't do that today unless it's some primitive culture that this hasn't been westernized yet, or whatever you want to call it. Let's take a walk around our city in our mind for a second. Let's get on I-4 and go south. And let's see the exit for Disneyland, right? And Universal, and places where we've built entire worlds to entertain us. And then we, then we go to Camping World Stadium. Amway Center, places where we've built these huge, magnificent buildings to, to watch concerts in or football games and whatnot. Large resort hotels with elaborate pools. Downtown elaborate buildings that house large corporation offices and banks. Now, my point is not that these are the idols of our culture. My point is they are an indicator into what our idols tend to be. And they very much tend to be. Someone, I forget who, has said you can look at the tallest buildings in your city and usually tell what the idols are. I think ours is the Orlando Isle. I'm not sure. I don't know. We just like going in circles. So. An idol doesn't have to be a statue you worship. Paul said these were the, quote, objects of their worship. And that's the heart of idolatry. Not that it's made of concrete, but that it's an object, a thing that you worship. Anything you say, I can't live without... Put the blank there. My life loses its meaning and purpose without fill in the blank there. It can be very good things, right? Very good things. And so the point is not, I go to Disney World. The point is not, you go to Disney World, you're an idolater. No, that's not the point. The point is, the fact that places like that exist in our culture is an indicator to the things that we can, if we're not careful, we can tend to prioritize in idolatry. Things like comfort, things like family. Things like leisure. Things like money. What's the primary idols of our city? I believe the primary idol is comfort. It's a city of pleasure and that's connected to comfort. And our economy is literally directed, directly impacted by people's pursuit of pleasure and comfort. We want you to go on vacation. It's good for the economy. right? We want you to go to that convention. It's good for the economy. We want you to, to, to come spend thousands of dollars at Disney. It's good for the economy. We're directly impacted by that. So it would make sense that in our culture, and we live in a place where, hey, man, November through March, it's an incredible place to live. The rest of the year is really hot. Still great because we've got the beach and Disney World and all that, but it's, it's hot. But let me ask you, have you examined your own heart lately and asked yourself what idols that you struggle with? 
Do you crave the approval for others? Do you crave power or control? Do you crave comfort? What do you depend on for the core of meaning and identity? What if it, if it was gone, you just like, I can't be happy. I can't have meaning without that. It would wound me too deeply. Listen, so if you're a career-oriented person, just know that success in your field can become an idol. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it can be one. It could be you crave success for the, or the approval of others or to gain power or to gain control. What it, it might be to feed another idol, but it can become a problem. If you're more of a family-oriented person, Family or children can become your idol. And that could be because you have a control problem and you most fully exercise it in your home over your children or your spouse. Or it could be the one place you feel loved and accepted. And that's what you crave the most. Romance and love can be an idol. If I just had a love life, if I just had, if I could just meet Mr. or Mrs. Right, if I could just find my quote soulmate, if I lost him or her, everything would be over forever. I could never recover. Those are thoughts and ideas that paint a picture of where our idols can be. And we have to start with our own hearts. Hold up God's truth to expose and destroy the idols. We have to start with us. Imagine you had a friend that, that worked at a restaurant, and they were always trying to get you to come to their restaurant. Maybe they owned it, right? They tried to get you to eat there, but they would never eat there. Like, you should go there. It's great. I'll give you a coupon, right? And you're like, how is it? You're like, well, I've never been. Right? You think that's kind of, it sounds kind of silly, right? Well, that's what it's like when we don't apply the gospel to our life and tear down the idols in our own heart, and we go to our neighbor and tell them they should try this. And they're like, you're not applying it. Doesn't make sense. Only as we deal with our own idols can we lovingly help others deal with theirs. So look at, the, look at how Paul brought the truth to bear on them, the truth of God's word. The first thing we see is he talked about that he brought the truth about God in verses 24 and 25. He, he noticed an altar that said, quote, to the unknown God. And they were so superstitious, literally. They had so many idols, and they were so superstitious about not giving an idol its proper place that they had a place where it was kind of like, this is the junk drawer for everything we might have missed. And this is just the unknown things that we don't know about. It's like covering all my bases, right? It's like having the coexist bumper sticker on the car. It's like, let's just all think there's truth in all of them, right? That's the picture we have here of them. And Paul says, what you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. What he's saying is this. You've already admitted your ignorance. See, they prided themselves on knowledge and lack of ignorance. That was the unseen idol that lay at the root. And him speaking to a room full of philosophy majors claiming to know the deep truths of the world, Paul shows them that they fall short of their very own ethic. The worst thing you could be to many of these people was ignorant. And he says, you've got an idol that displays your ignorance. So let me tell you about what you're ignorant of. And what does he do? He starts extolling the greatness of God and the creation, God is the creator, how God made everything. So in verse 24, he notes, God's made everything, so you can't make God a house. He doesn't need your house. He won't fit in your temples and your altars. He's a creator. He's not creation. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. This is different from all their idols. See, he says the God, the true God, can't be served by human hands. This is radically different from idols because idols must be served. All idols do is take. They have to be catered to, and they demand sacrifices regularly. So, oh, you don't do that. Oh, yeah. 
Longer hours at work, a bigger house, more money, less time with the kids. Whatever the idol is, it will demand you sacrifice for it, and sometimes it'll take your very integrity. Idols demand prioritization. They take from you. They take from your family. They take from your church. But they never give you what they promise. They never give you what you're really looking for. Idols demand to be served and yet can't save. And yet in the New Testament, Jesus walks on the scene and he says, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus comes and says, I've come to serve and save, to seek and save the lost. Where, and Paul looks at them and he says, listen, you can't serve. He doesn't get me served if you're in. He doesn't need you. But see, your idols, they always need you. They always need you. And every idol has a false gospel a false good news that it proclaims to you. It promises you salvation and wholeness, or as they would say in the Old Testament, shalom, but you have to sacrifice for it. Whereas the true God of the true gospel offered himself up for you. See, idols take, the gospel gives. Idols bring death, the gospel brings resurrection life. And we have to remind ourselves of that, first of all, but we also have to take that to our culture, that the idols of this world are takers and not givers. We've always got to remind ourselves and in the world that the God of the Bible is a life-giving God. He gives life. He gives breath. He gives everything. Every good thing comes from Him. True joy can only be found in Him. But He didn't just extol this greatness of God. He extols the nearness of God. He's not far from each of us, He says. He wants you to seek Him and find Him. He's not like the Epicureans thought of their gods. He's not detached and impersonal. He's very personal. Verse 26, he's even sovereign over and involved in the allotted periods or seasons and boundaries of dwelling. He's not detached and powerless. He's sovereign and in control and involved in our lives. And he moves from that to the truth about man. That whole question of who am I? And in verses 26 to 28, he starts dealing with it. We're created by a great and near God, and every single one of us come from one man, and we know that man to be Adam, and we are, as Paul says, God's offspring. In verse 28, he's actually quoting from one of their own philosophers who wrote these things about false gods, right? He's quoting from their philosophers. Just as we might would quote to, to make a point from a movie star or a, a critic or a cultural commentator or a scientist or whoever to make a point. Because we're God's offspring, Paul says we shouldn't think he's gold or silver or stone or anything that we can form with our own imagination creation around us and the fact that we are created points to the fact that there's a much more complex, more powerful, more sovereign God than we can ever devise in our own minds. It points us to the fact that we're not in control, but someone else is. So the Imago Dei, the doctrine of that we are created in the image of God, is foundational to confronting idolatry in our own life and in the lives of our neighbors. See, if we're made in God's image, we're made to worship Him, not something that we make. We're the one made in it. We're subordinate. We are made for another. This means life is not ultimately about me, but at the same time, I'm of value. It means I'm not everything, but I am something. It means I'm not supreme, but I am important because I'm made in God's image, but I'm not God. And it brings about both humility and value. And it begins to help deconstruct idols as we hold up, the God, hold up the true God to show the shallowness of the idols that we tend to build and hold up the Imago Dei to show both man's need for humility and our greater purpose, which is beyond us. 
And then he moves to the truth about sin. And we see that in verses 27 and 29 through 30, that something has obviously gone wrong in the world. Throughout this, Paul points to the fact of this. Verse 27, he says, man should seek God, perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Well, we know that's not happening, right? Man, he talks about that in Romans 1. And he talks about it in Romans 3 when he says, no one seeks God, no, not one. The point is, we don't seek God fully like we should. Verse 29, we ought to think. We ought not to think, he says, that God is this way. But we do. We have all kinds of thoughts about God that aren't true. Verse 30, he says, the times of ignorance is over. Time to repent. He's saying something's wrong. Something's wrong. And it's been said that all sin at its heart is idolatry. And that's what Roman 1 really makes clear. So man's sin problem puts man in a serious predicament with the Creator because that's his next point is the truth about judgment. That whole question, what's my future? Where am I going? In verse 31, he says, God's going to judge the world. He's even fixed a day. The God you failed to honor to worship properly, the one you're ignorant of, the God you've replaced in your life and rebelled against, he says, will judge you and me and everyone in the world. And he says, it's not just any judgment. It's in righteousness. It's perfect, just, and righteous judgment. It will be perfectly right. And the worst thing for an unrighteous people is to be judged by a righteous judge. And we tend to want to shrink back from talking about sin and judgment, especially, especially with secular-minded people. Paul didn't see it as a subject to be avoided. He saw it as foundational, <coughs> need-to-know information, that your idolatry is a problem, that your sin is a problem, because God will judge in righteousness, and that Jesus, the one he's raised from the dead, is, in fact, the judge, so you need to repent. Because the future of every human being is to stand before God the Son and give an account. And if that's the future for every human being, if that's the one thing we know for sure is that every human being is going to stand before Jesus and give an account, that's need to know information. That's not tertiary. That's primary. And then he tells them, he begins to tell them the truth about Jesus when he says, and God has showed who this person is by raising him from the dead. Now, he's, he's interrupted here. You expect him to go into a fuller explanation, and maybe he did before he was interrupted. We don't really know for sure, but we know in the marketplace he was already preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He had already been preaching the gospel to these people. But, man, they're, they're bothered by this idea of a resurrection. But Paul's point in all this was he was making his way to Jesus because that's who he had been preaching. That was his message, was Christ, his cross, his resurrection. And if we confront worldviews and idols and culture and we fail to get to Jesus, we've missed the whole point. Because resurrection is the key. It's the key. See, idols are dead. And they're takers and they're killers. And Jesus is alive and he gives life. It's the greatest contrast that we can make. So we have to get to Jesus. We have to get to the empty tomb. We have to talk about Christ and his resurrection. And he also shared with them the truth about responsibility. Because you've got to repent. You need to repent. Paul had made it clear. Now was the time. Man is responsible for how he responds to God and how he responds to the gospel and what he does with the message of Christ. God's going to judge. In fact, Jesus will judge. So man must respond. And the proper response is to repent, to turn to turn from sin to God, to have a change of mind, a change of heart, where you turn from your sin and you put your faith in Christ. 
who's died in our place, who's risen again, understanding what I can do and what the, the temples I can erect and the, and the effort that I can put forth to, to make myself right with God won't do the trick. I need Christ. I need the one true God, God the Son who has come and who has died for me and who has risen again to repent, to put our faith in Him. But notice how they responded when Paul starts talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Three responses. They mock. Some considered and said, we'll hear more about this later, and some believed. When we did the three circles training, we said this was red, yellow, green. Red, yellow, green. We still see this today. Some will mock, laugh, sneer. Some will say, I want to think about that. In fact, that was a lot of them, and that's a win these days is to, to get to move the conversation forward. And some believed, but it says they joined him and believed. So they might not have believed on the spot. There's no record at this moment that a church was founded there. So it's possible they joined him, began try, and then they believed process of them having to come to understand the truth of the gospel. But we simply hold to and also hold forth Jesus and his message. And that's what Paul does here. Now let me ask you this morning. First off, before you can even think about engaging our neighbors, do you have idols that you need to commune? We all do from time to time. We all struggle with it. We all have tendencies and things that are unique to us what idols do you need to confront in your own heart? And let me ask you, are you stirred by or are you swimming in the idolatry of this day? How are you handling it? Will you engage? Will you confront in your heart and in the heart of our people in our city and in our neighbors the gospel of Jesus? Can we move conversations forward? We can only do it if we begin to first apply it to our own heart. Let's pray.